David began this psalm for us, uh, this verse in Psalm 125, or Psalm 37, verse 25. I was young, and now I am old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken, or their children begging for bread. Indeed, they lend generously, and their children will be a blessing. That, um, that verse is um, the grace that Jewish people say at the end of a meal. This blessing, this assurance that God will bless his people, that the children of the righteous won't be seen begging for bread. And it's the most well-known, the most commented verse um, in this whole psalm. The psalm itself, if you go back to the beginning, it's classified as a sermon or a homily. And the problem that it addresses is the prospering of the wicked. Verse 1, fret not when the wicked prosper or evildoers run their way. So it's entering us into this universal human problem. What do we do? How do we conduct ourselves? How do we think when the wicked and the oppressor rules? And when the poor and the needy are oppressed? And the righteous suffer? That's the problem that kind of sits at the heart of the whole psalm. And it's 40 verses long. We only read a fraction of it today. But it's a long homily about how we're to deal with the crises, with the contradictions, the injustice that we face every day. There's a spiritual method, there's a spiritual approach to dealing with that uncertainty and that chaos that we face day to day. If you know the Psalms well, you'll know that Psalm 49 and Psalm 73 do exactly the same thing with the same problem. They're usually all labeled wisdom psalms because wisdom is the means of dealing with um, the ambiguous, with wrestling with the world upside down. The book of Job is probably like the maximal, the extreme example of a world turned upside down. But Psalm 37 and 49 and 73 do the same thing. And believe it or not, the Joseph story probably serves a similar function. It's sometimes called a wisdom tale. And especially like in children's worship or in Bible studies, we study Joseph as this exemplar of good character. He works hard in prison and he um, serves faithfully before Potiphar and before Pharaoh. And so um, Joseph emerges as this kind of model character we're supposed to emulate. But it's probably just as important, if not more important, to recognize that Joseph's story isn't about like individual excellence. Joseph is, the, is the, one of the youngest brothers of 12. And his story symbolizes for Israel how we conduct ourselves when the world is upside down. As a family. As a people. And so we read in uh, Genesis 45 today of the reconciling of Joseph's family. And in that moment, chapters 41 to 45, Joseph has had the opportunity to take his full revenge against his brothers. He has every power in the most powerful kingdom, and he can go back and punish his brothers for what they've done to him, selling him into slavery. And Joseph sits with this decision, if you watch over these journeys, that he sends his brothers back to Canaan to retrieve his father and his son Benjamin. And when Joseph breaks out weeping, it is because he's given in to love. Love your enemies, I say. Turn your cheek to another. Jesus picks up on that. When there's an opportunity and the wicked thrive and prosper, what will you do? 
And Joseph is this model example of hope. Sending his brothers back to Canaan because Joseph, among all the brothers, still believes in the promises of God. All of these uh, stories together are responses to train us how to live in the midst of crisis, of a world upside down. If we go back to Psalm 37, it has two dimensions to it that I want to unfold just a bit. The first is, um, you could call it spirituality in the present. That peace of mind that we try to attain when the world seems to be chaotic and frenetic. The ability to be still. The psalmist sets it up with these four refrains that are repeated. Fret not, fret not, fret not. Do not be angry, do not be given to wrath. It's the pastoral side of the psalm. Think of Joseph, you could imagine in the story, what's going on in his mind the first time his brothers come looking for bread. I don't think we're supposed to imagine Joseph as superhuman and saying, oh, they finally come. Blessed, look at my brothers are here. He probably just stewed in anger. These guys sold me for nothing and they lied to my father to send me here. And Joseph is at that moment, that spiritual decision, do I allow the fretting and the panic and the wrath to define me? And the psalmist addresses that. Fret not, because you know when the wicked, when those political authorities, when those dictators in the world are in positions of power using the world's resources for their own desires, the instinct is to panic and fret, to be angry, to curl in on yourself in wrath. If there's anything that um, I most resent and most concerned about in our social media world, for all of its strengths, is that it fumes and accelerates that wrath and fretting and anger. It just feeds on that. If there wasn't an impulse for us to become angry at injustice around us, probably three-quarters of the energy of a tweet would go away. It spins and it's recycled and it goes viral because it touches on an angry, wrathful nerve a hateful nerve. And we're justified for a moment to extend that wrath outward towards others, outside of ourselves, to stew a little bit on that fretting. And the remedy for that in the psalmist is in this fourfold move, this beautiful picture. He says, first, trust in the Lord and do good. To look out on the world and not be focused on what's happening in your midst, but to turn your eyes to the Lord. He says in verse 4, delight yourself in the Lord. And then as he goes on in verse 6 and 7, be still before the Lord. Commit yourself to do good. I think that's the key to it there in that moment. Be still before the Lord. Silence yourself. You may have never thought of that, but there's a long um, tradition that goes back to the Jews and the early church and the monastics the men and women who, who gave themselves to living in monasteries and feeding on this idea of solitude and peacefulness, trying to develop that habit, that ability in the midst of crisis, in the midst of a life that seems frantic, that seems out of control or upside down, do you have the ability to be at peace within yourself? That's the discipline, I think, there that the psalmist is giving. Be still. If you know Psalm 46, there's so many psalms that have the same image. 46, 47, 48, the Psalms of Zion. In Psalm 46, that classic one, the 
the mountains rage, the earth shatters, the, the mountains slip into the heart of the sea, nations rage, kings war. It's a violent, violent psalm. But right in the middle it says, but there is a river that makes glad the city of God. God is in the midst of her. Cease and know that I am God. It's that training that's so intuitive to the Psalms that life will always be frantic. It will always be full of contradictions. And so the godly person knows how to find the stillness of the city in the midst of life when it is frantic. Do you know that discipline? Have you ever learned to achieve it? You can often imagine, it's well kind of imagined as the, the classic um, imperial um, military leader. When all things are in crisis, when all war is fog, the peace of mind to make steady decisions. Or the great athlete, you know, that in the last seconds of a game can still their thoughts and perform at the very highest level. Do you know that kind of peacefulness of an artist, a mother surrounded by small children, and the noise and the questions and the fighting that goes on to find a moment of stillness. There is something there that everyone can achieve if it's learned. That clamoring that goes on in life. A student in the midst of the most tense time of a semester with papers and friendships and demands voicing everything at us in this loud volume and the ability to be still. That's the solution the psalmist gives us. Be still in the moment. If you can learn that, you will learn to overcome most of what's difficult about life. To be peaceful in the midst of crisis because the crisis will not go away. It's how we deal with the crisis. Does it become a problem that defines us or does it become something that recenters us back on the presence of God? There may be a more difficult move in the psalm and that is to the future and to hope. It's the same idea that we had last week. The hopefulness of the church, the way that we're guided by and strengthened by the virtue of hope. These two verses today that set it up for us in verse 10, just a little while, just a little while and the wicked will be no more. Or verse 25, I was young and now I'm old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken or their children begging for bread. That verse there is the most commented on in this psalm. It's one of the most commented on in history because people find it so hard to believe. There's a woman named Jacqueline Oshero. She's a Jewish poet. Her father-in-law was a survivor at Auschwitz. And she writes a long poem called Psalm 37 at Auschwitz. And she wonders kind of um, thematically through the scenes of Auschwitz. She says, I imagine a young man who finds himself in the line for work rather than the line for gas. Does he turn to that verse in his head? Does he console himself that just a little while and the wicked will be no more? I wonder if he says to himself, I was young and now I'm old, but I've not seen the righteous forsaken. He would have known his Psalms. He would have been trained in his bar mitzvah. He would have known these. Did they console him in his mind? I wonder ever, she says, if somebody looked out to a brother or a father or to a son and mouth these words of hope. There's a stark moment towards the end. She says, I know what my father-in-law would say. You have no idea you weren't there. But couldn't it, she says, couldn't it have been? I mean, it's a beautiful and powerful and dark um, poem around how difficult it can be to be people in hope when the wicked truly flourish. 
and the kind of resolve most of us have never have to test and most of us never will. To have that kind of hopefulness that goes on even though everything in our midst says the contrary. This is the Christian hope. This is what Paul calls us to in 1 Corinthians 15. I want to draw out just two elements of this kind of hopefulness in the way that I think is often missed in Psalm 37, verse 25. So many Christians came to it and found it impossible when they read it. But it's been written in a very clever way. I was young and now I am old. It plays for us on the idea that my own perspective is never sufficient. There's always somebody older than me who's seen more. Tradition of the elders. It's not something we respect in our culture hardly at all. That other people who may have lived longer and are more seasoned in life may have a perspective that's clearer than my own. That's the genius of that verse. My own view of the world is never adequate. My own decision, my own summation of what I think about the chaos and the upside-down nature of the world is always a limited perspective. There's someone who has lived longer. Even the elderly know someone else has lived longer. I have not come to the end of my life. It is a claim whose verdict is always open. And that is what hope looks like. A promise that is always possible. There's a certain way, I think, that the cleverness does it. It actually takes your eyes off of the wicked because you realize everything we see, if we mount up all the evidence in the world, it is insufficient to undo the claim that God might save because you haven't seen enough. What the eye sees is not definitive. It brings us back with verse 10 and verse 9 to the stillness in the Lord, to trust and delight in Him not to be fixed on what our eyes see. Paul opens this up for us in 1 Corinthians 15. This is maybe our second or third reading in this chapter. I think we have another one next um, week. Four readings in 1 Corinthians. It's Paul's 60-something verses, or 58. It is the longest chapter that Paul writes. A single argument in 1 Corinthians 15, reasoning with the Corinthians about the resurrection from the dead. And they're troubled. They've brought him, we think, all kinds of arguments. But they're essentially like the person who refuses to believe that this body that I wear will be made new. And Paul says, if you don't get that, there's nothing to the Christian faith. If that body that you walk around in isn't died and made a kernel in the earth and born again to a spiritual body, then all of this is for naught. Because if the dead aren't raised, then Jesus isn't raised. And if Jesus isn't raised, all is lost. And Paul spends so much time on that so that we realize that what is laid up for us is a new world. This earth born again as a seed into a spiritual earth. And these bodies like Jesus born again into a spiritual body. And if that's true, Paul says, this is the idea from last week, if that is true, then I may live in this world as if the things that I cling to and the things that I own and the health of this body are not the end and I don't need to fret. I don't need to panic and become wrathful when the wicked prosper. For there will be a day, as Paul says at the end of the chapter, when death and its sting will be no more. For the end of death is victory, and Christ our Lord is victory. Amen.